to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Dr. Mark Vonnegut has spent four decades as a pediatrician taking care of coughs, fevers, ear infections, and more serious and unusual childhood maladies, while dealing all the while with a personal mental health challenge, bipolar disorder. In his latest book, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, he takes us on a journey through the changes in medicine over his 40 years of practice and suggests ways to improve the current state of medical care. His book is published by Seven Stories Press and brings Dr. Mark Vonnegut to our show now. Welcome. Welcome. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. You begin by pointing out that the practice of medicine has changed considerably over those 40 plus years and, and argue that you've got, they've gotten a lot worse in a number they of ways. Absolutely have. I think patients used to have a lot more choice. Uh, doctors and hospitals used to have a lot more choice. And I think, uh, I think things have, you know, we've lost a lot of hospitals. Uh, uh, things are unaffordable, inaccessible. So I do think medical care has, uh, has deteriorated. Well, you were able to pay back your educational debt after 18 months in practice. And nowadays, don't many new doctors start practicing with a half a million dollars in debt? Absolutely. Or, from what? <laughs> from, from, from tuition, from they don't get a real job until they're mid-30s. So if they have, um, you know, the... So if they want to do something outrageous, like have a house and children, and uh, so their, their their debt is going up and up, but they still have the college debt, they have medical school debt, um, and that is something that really limits their choices. It uh, They can't go into uh, primary care or they can't go into psychiatry. I mean, they can, but they can't, they, it's economically much more difficult to go into a low-paying specialty. But in spite of that, the 2021 application for medical school increased 18% from 2020, especially among underrepresented minorities. And that's wonderful. Um, well, I was on the admissions committee um, for a while, and one of the things uh, we said was, how are we taking such wonderful applicants and turning them into lousy doctors? <laughs> so what advice do you have for young people who are starting medical school, and, and why are different people drawn to different specialties? When does that usually happen? That one of the really good things about medical education is you get to spend like a month with uh, plastic surgeons. You get to spend a month doing regular orthopedics. You get to spend a month doing pediatrics or ICU. So you get a real sense of uh, of whether or not you like a, a specific field, and you get a, a sense of whether or not you like the people in it. Mm. Um, and I think I I, uh, I gravitated to pediatrics because of the resilience uh, of children and the fact that I like pediatricians. It used to be that 90% of what doctors did was devoted to patient care, but now you say one half of a doctor's time is spent on things like coding, billing, negotiating with insurers. Does that mean that patients are getting less time, less of the time they need with their doctors, or that the doctors are just working a lot more hours? Both. Um, I think 
it, you know, doctors now uh, are told that to be economically efficient, they should probably see six patients an hour. Forty uh, percent of that time, the doctor is clicking uh, data into a machine. Uh, patients are waiting eight hours to see people in emergency rooms. Uh, so I think the patient's time and the doctor's time have been devalued. How much of the, have the changes in healthcare over the course of your career, the privatization of healthcare, the barriers to mental health services, the skyrocketing costs of insurance and pharmaceuticals, how much of, have, have they affected the quality of healthcare? I think they've affected the quality and the value of healthcare a great deal. Uh, there are large parts, especially of rural America and underserved uh, urban areas where there are no hospitals and there are no community doctors and, uh, uh, and people are dependent on airlifts. Quite literally, mm -hmm. the community hospitals no longer exist. Well, you say that what's wrong with American healthcare is that it's 90% about money and 10% about healthcare. Uh, that's partly because of insurance mandates and administration? It is, and there, there was legislation in the 80s which made it uh, possible for insurers to be uh, run on a for-profit basis. Prior to that, uh, the, the role of the insurer was just to pay the medical costs. It was also made possible for the pharmaceutical industry to buy research rather than do research. Um, and both of those things have... Uh, turned, you know, pharmaceuticals and insurance into for-profit enterprises, and uh, that sucks money and value away from patient care. The cost of health insurance continues to climb, and in 1968, the average family paid about $200 per year for medical care, including doctor visits, hospitals, medications, health insurance. But according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, the average cost of employer-sponsored health insurance for annual premiums in 2019 was $7,188 for single coverage, 20576 for family coverage. And that report also found that the average annual deductible amount for single coverage was $1,655 for covered workers. So um, that's it's gotten rather expensive. And don't high health care costs hit the uninsured and low-income populations even harder? Yes, and the sick. Uh, one of the things that happens if you're unlucky enough to have a child with cancer uh, is that we are really pretty good, and we have been for a long time at curing leukemia and stuff, but the out-of-patient costs uh, virtually guarantee that, a fa that the family will end up bankrupt. Um, and in our point of view, uh, when I was training, uh, it was just misfortune enough to have a child with a serious illness. But now you, you uh, have a child with a serious illness and, you're, and, and, and you don't have any more money. So what happens? The child dies? No, the child the the child gets care, and a huge amount of medical debt is 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 generated, a lot of which can't be um, collected. But still, you have a family that's saddled with uh, a great deal of debt. The leading cost, uh, the leading uh, 
cause of uh, family bankruptcy uh, is is medical debt, and that leads directly to homelessness, which, which leads directly to untreated hepatitis and untreated HIV. So we're creating a mess. So that one case of, of leukemia, it's absolutely wonderful that we can save those children, but the, but the down, uh, downstream costs economically uh, are truly dreadful in terms of individual and public health. Hasn't the privatization of healthcare led to more tests and, and unwarranted procedures for patients? It absolutely has, because uh, hospitals and doctors are under more economic pressure than ever, and um, and they they make up that money uh, in making making things cost way too much. Um, when I cut off part of my thumb in with a table saw. Um, I was given two Tylenol, which I promise you is not adequate pain relief when you cut your, part of your thumb off with a table saw. And those Tylenol cost $19 each because the only way that hospital can stay alive is to overcharge. When I, was, when I started, um, our overhead per visit was about $3. Um, which made it easy for us to give away care when that was the appropriate thing to do. And, and that's what that, that low overhead is what made it possible for me to pay, back, pay down my student debt in uh, 18 months. What are the risks that come with over-testing patients? Uh, is, <laughs> is more testing leading to better outcomes? It's leading to worse outcomes. There's something that as a resident we call the Ulysses syndrome, which was you found an unnecessary, you did an unnecessary test and it came back positive. If you do 20 tests, one of them is going to come down uh, slightly abnormal. And then you go to the lab to do more tests. Um, and that's why we, it, it, you get sent on an odyssey, uh, which is a very expensive odyssey. Um, and sometimes you end up with even unnecessary surgery. Doesn't privatization of healthcare also lead to a two-tiered system where the wealthier people can buy faster access to more healthcare? It does. And, um, and one of the things... Uh, it, it's it's a form of cherry picking where the insurers want to cover people who don't need medical care, uh, and they essentially can dump um, the patients who are too expensive uh, onto uh, Medicaid, um, and and so what we think of as Medicaid as a safety net for poor people, it's actually a safety net for insurers so that they don't have to pay for these very expensive patients. How has privatization affected physicians? It's... It's it's made them more employees and uh, less. They they have less agency. Uh, they have less less say about their work conditions. Um, a good friend who was a psychiatrist who had some ideas about how to you know how a program could be improved. And administration told him that if he didn't like his job, there are plenty of people who would. Um, and so doctors, 
when they apply and they go to medical school, ex expect to end up, you know, in charge of something because of their expertise. And when they're put on an assembly line and told to see six patients and they have to be level three, four or five and so on, I think that's where the burnout is coming as much as the volume due to COVID-19. You mentioned Medicaid. What about Obamacare? Has that have played a, a positive role? Very positive role, especially for sick children, um, because it, you know, having such a large uh, uninsured population um, is sheer. I mean, it's insanity because some of those people are going to get sick, and where do they end up? They end up in Medicaid, and that puts everybody's taxes through the roof. Um, and the people get lousy care, and if you don't treat diabetes and asthma and other chronic conditions well, they're going to end up more and more expensive. My guest today on Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Mark Vonnegut, Dr. Mark Vonnegut, his latest book, the Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, is published by Seven Stories Press. Um, the 46% uh, report difficulty in paying for dental care. 46% also uh, report difficulty paying for out-of-pocket costs not covered by insurance. And then 33% have difficulty paying for hearing or vision. And 26% report difficulty paying for prescription drugs. Uh, that's a lot that's of difficulty in paying for the things that we need to stay healthy. We're the richest nation in the world, spending twice as much per person on health care as anyone else. Um, and it, it, you know, it didn't used to be that way. It's not that way elsewhere. It doesn't have to be this way. And as I say, it's ends up very, very expensive to have an uninsured popula uh, population. There were things I would have changed about Obamacare. I would have made there be a federal option. Um, but Obamacare, with all its imperfections, increased the number of uh, insured people. And, in, and that made medical care for all of us a lot more affordable. Why do you think it's become so political? Because it began as a, a proposal from a conservative organization, and uh, the first time it was instituted was it was called Romney Care when mm -hmm. uh, when Romney, uh, then the governor of Massachusetts, instituted it. Um, Obamacare isn't all that different from Romney Care. Not at all. And I do think things can, in this country, anything can become um, politicized. And I, I don't know who it was who said we have uh, the best Congress money can buy. Mm -hmm. Does the fact that medical care is now unaffordable for many Americans uh, cause life expectancy? Has it caused life expectancy to go down? Yes, it has. And we're also in all the indices of, of health care, including life expectancy, uh, we're now about 17 on the list. So there are third world, world countries that take better care of their population than we do. You devote a, a chapter to insulin. 
Why yep. why that drug in particular, although uh, you talk about other drugs as well? Insulin was discovered by scientists who, and most scientists still, are working to uh, increase knowledge uh, rather than uh, money. These guys, so they invented an, a life-saving drug uh, at, the, at the time that they isolated insulin. Uh, diabetes was an invariable invariably fatal illness uh, and they sold because they didn't want there to be any cost barriers uh, to getting insulin they sold the commercial rights for four dollars and the price of insulin has gone up exponentially to the point where many diabetics can't afford insulin and they're making a choice between insulin and food and if you inadequately uh, treat diabetes, you clog up your emergency room, uh, you, it's the leading cost of amputations, it's the leading cost of blindness, leading cost of uh, kidney um, failure and transplant. So, so whatever money you made or, uh, or saved by upping the price of insulin uh, ends up, uh, again, it, it ends up uh, increasing taxes because the insurers in the pharmaceutical industry, they, it doesn't hurt them at all. It just hurts everybody else. In many cases, uh, the way uh, uh, some drug prices are afford- become affordable is that people wind up taking the generics. But there is no generic for insulin. No. <laughs> that is and, the original and the only. And that's by design. Uh, an awful lot, uh, much more of uh, pharmaceutical money uh, goes into um, uh, legal maneuvering to make, make their patents uh, uh, you know, stay current so that they don't have any competition. Um, so that that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not a mistake. It's the insulin prices and the lack of a generic are all by design. And, uh, you know, they spent $4 for the commercial rights and they spend probably hundreds of millions of dollars maintaining their patent rights. Well, don't they need all that money to run all of those commercials on television? I would say that over half the commercials I see on television are for various pharmaceutical products. It's ridiculous. You know, and I remember sitting there with my six-year-old who said, uh, hey, uh, Dad, what's erectile dysfunction? (laughs) it's it's um, and if you check out the prices uh, of those uh, new drugs, uh, which which I do, um, uh, you you will find that those those drugs cost you know twenty two hundred thousand dollars each. Um, but the, but I the had, commercials are designed to get people to come to you, a doctor, right. and and say right. I, I think I need this drug or my kid needs this drug. Right. And some of them are so unspecific, they come to me saying they want the purple pill. Uh-huh. They don't even know what the purple pill is, but they want the purple pill. Um, it's, it's nowhere else in the world is it legal for uh, pharmaceutical industries to advertise directly to patients. And there are very good reasons for that. 
So what happens when insulin is sold in other countries? Do they get similar prices or? Uh... The, the, the prices there are very, very high, too, again, because of uh, the pharmaceutical industry here. Uh, spends a lot of money and time making sure that insulin, which is a life-saving drug that you don't have any choice about, uh, is expensive all over the world. What about mental health coverage? When Simone Biles shared her experience with mental health issues, there was an outpouring of support for her. And Michael Phelps has promoted the online therapy site Talkspace. Are things improving for people with mental health issues? Um, they are in terms of stigma, in terms of public awareness, um, but, but what we're missing is we're missing uh, doctors and hospitals and other resources uh, to take care of the, of, of the mentally ill. Aren't people um, still but, becoming psychiatrists and psychologists? Uh, they are, but they, like everybody else, they are put on assembly lines. Um, and, and not allowed to be very productive. When I started, and I, if I had a teenager who was cutting themselves and suicidal, I would get on the phone, I would call the head of psychiatry at Mass General, that child would be seen within a, within a week, and we would talk on the phone and get a plan. Among the things that are hindering medical care now is the lack of communication. Nobody makes phone calls anymore and nobody responds to emails. And the person who emailed is said, you know, their answer to what have you done? Oh, I sent an email. It, you know, there used to be a lot more very direct communication and, and very efficient care. Right now, if you need a child psychiatrist, there's a waiting line at six to nine months. And part of what I wanted to say sometimes when I called is my child doesn't this my patient doesn't want to kill themselves in six months. They, they're, they're worried about killing themselves now. Hmm. Well, you say that when you were being admitted to the McLean Hospital, the psychiatrist didn't trust you. You had back pain and he thought you were fabricating or exaggerating your symptoms. Why right. do you think that was? Because of a lack of caring. I mean, that's why uh, the book has the title uh, it does. And I do think doctors... I mean, The Heart of Caring. Yeah. The one I, did I misname my own book? <laughs> um, anyway, the, it's, it's caring is not... There's no way to check caring. There's no way to check, um, you know... It's just, I think doctors have been taken out of the caring business. I think over half of medical care is delivered by a doctor you've never seen and you will never see again. And that takes the caring out of healthcare. So, in the past, yeah, I, I used to go to a family doctor. That was everybody had a family doctor, and that doctor knew everything about. Um, all of the my health issues over the years, when mm -hmm. I when I'd had a sore throat, when I'd had a cold, and he knew your grandparents too. <laughs> well, not our doctor, but he but he knew my parents. That's for sure, <laughs> yeah. and and my siblings. <laughs> right. And that's all gone. Yes, 
and it was in this rather small town I grew up, there, were, there was a choice of four doctors. And um, as I say, that doesn't exist anymore. And the community hospitals have either gone broke or been bought up by a conglomerate, uh, which once again, uh, the purpose of these conglomerates is uh, the money of medicine rather than the mission of medicine. Uh, and it makes all the difference in the world. I mentioned that uh, your the doctor thought you were fabricating or exaggerating your symptoms, your back pain symptoms. What about patients with bipolar disorder and other mental health issues? Do they get inferior treatment because their doctors don't trust them? I think they do. And I think there's um, the part of the pressure on uh, mental uh, psychiatric hospitals, as well as others, is the length of stay. Uh, insurers say, uh, you can admit this patient, but two weeks from now, that patient has to be out of here. Now, there are advantages in short hospitalizations, but not when the purpose of the hospitalization is to get the patient back on the street, which leads to overtreatment with drugs. Um, and it, it, it just doesn't, again, there's a, there's a lack of caring. Well, if a, a young child has mental care, yeah, mental issues, uh, talk therapy is not going to work, is it? Oh, it can. It and they do play therapy, and they're wonderful. I have four uh, social worker therapists, um, and they do. They take care of the teenagers. Um, but they also, you know, help parents. When you, when you have a child who um, is, is, is violent or difficult or whatever, the parents need a lot of help. And so the social workers and the therapists, uh, they work with the parents as well as the child. What about you? Do you um, keep in contact with the parents after you've treated the child? Absolutely. Um, and I'm, you know, and, and again, I have uh, the wonderful privilege of taking care of babies, uh, of babies I took care of 40 years ago. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, these people will call me about stuff. They, you know, and 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 they also give me tremendous support. Um, if anybody, you know, um, the community protects me, and the community lets me, you know, not do X-rays or not prescribe medicine or whatever. Whereas in other other doctors uh, might get complained about, I, I I get pretty much a free ride. A number of your chapters are about uh, illnesses that I associate with adults, like HIV and Ebola. Mm -hmm. um, how do they uh, relate to, to children? The, the uh, truth is that individual health, um, like your health affects my health, and the, effect, and the health of people living under bridges uh, affects everybody's health. Um, and, and so I, th I think, you know, people have the notion that if, if we don't pay for the homeless, we'll somehow save money. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, I mentioned Ebola just because, you know, that gets attention where somebody thinks that diabetes uh, 
doesn't get the attention it wants, but both. But diabetes probably has more effect on public health than Ebola. How much does treating children successfully involve dealing with their parents? And who's harder to work with, the children or their parents? The parents, by far. <laughs> uh, what about the, when you would, when you uh, had your own child was sick? Obviously, you weren't going to treat the, do all the treating the child, were you? No, but it's but it's 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 a handicap rather rather than a benefit because the worst question you can ask me, uh, a friend or a child or whatever, or even my wife, what's the worst this can be? You don't want to, you know, because the worst, you you know, I can spend a lot of time reassuring my patients, but when it's my own child, you know, I, I go right to lymphoma or something terrible. The book uh, is uh, 238 pages long, contains something like 60 chapters, with each chapter only two to six pages. Is this uh, a family inheritance? (laughs) I I like to tell people he stole it from me. His books used to be a lot longer. Really? Your father's books? Your father (laughs) just wrote two, three-page chapters, too. He he. Later, he did uh-huh. the, early, the earlier books like Player Piano, Sirens of Titan, or whatever, have considerably uh, longer uh, type. Of, but I, I I did help proofread Sirens of Titan, and I do sometimes say that he stole stuff from me. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large at WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> I am sick, my head is sore I must see the doctor who knows what for I am sick, my tummy is sore I must see the doctor who knows what for Doctor, can you tell me Why am I in pain? Please, can you help Make this pain go away? We're back with Dr. Mark Vonnegut, whose latest book is The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, published by Seven uh, Stories Press. Uh, This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. Ironically, hasn't COVID-19 given us something good? You write, COVID-19 presents us with a chance to change healthcare from the money-driven enterprise it's become back to something we can all be proud of and what serves the needs of everyone. So um, how, how does that work? Well, it's an opportunity and I hope it doesn't turn into an opportunity lost um, because it's really clear with COVID-19 that everybody's health depends on everybody else's health because, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed by how uh, politicized uh, the vaccine has become. And I do think uh, also to uh, get people treated um, early, uh, the insurance company, <clears throat> they, <clears throat> they dropped uh, co-payments and deductibles, which saved families, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and also um, made care much more efficient because people weren't going around checking boxes about, uh, you know, who had what plan. 
Many children with COVID-19 seem to have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all, although hospitalizations for children under five are spiking right now. What are you telling parents who are worried about their children and COVID right now? And uh, especially for families who have children who have tested positive. Yes, and there are a lot of them. We used to have a whiteboard, which had a few names on it, and now we need a new whiteboard. Um, you know, I tell them we don't really, the, the truth is we don't really know much about this virus and what it can do. There are indications that it, it can uh, double the incidence of, of childhood diabetes. Um, it, it's, it, it's a germ we shouldn't be overconfident about. And with people who are nervous about vaccines, I say that, you know, this is a clear and present danger. Yeah, polio is, uh, there's none in North America. I don't like arguing about vaccines. It's, it's, it's mostly a waste of time. But with COVID-19, I tell people that they're, they're not only protecting their child, they're protecting their child's friends and, and their grandparents. And, um, and the sooner we can get this uh, virus under control, it will be better for everybody's health. Well, there were vaccines uh, being used before you even went into medicine. Uh, you have a whole chapter on polio, for example. Yep. Uh, people, everybody took those shots, but uh, I, I hear the arguments from people uh, on on this, and I don't want to get into the the fight. But your your feeling is that how old should a child first start becoming vaccinated? I think they're, they're, they are started at about two months. Um, the, the polio thing, um, you know, the, they just took the whole school. I don't even told, think they told us what was happening. There was certainly no informed consent. Well, I was grateful had, because I, I already knew of people who were in iron lungs. Yes, and, and, and I did too, and I knew of people. And... and um, we had a pond on the Cape, which we called Polio Pond, but because we knew a lot of kids who had swum there who, who got polio, um, and it, it was just um, it was part of good citizenship. And I think people say, well, uh, they should be allowed to not get vaccinated. That's true. But I would also say there are lots of things that as good citizens uh, we have to do. You're also not allowed to drive drunk. One of the chapters in your book is titled Medical Marijuana is Not Your Friend. And you write, I don't have any patients for whom medical marijuana has worked out well. But haven't there been recent reports of studies that have shown that Cannabis compounds may prevent coronavirus infection. I I, I doubt it. The whole problem. I mean, marijuana has been proposed as a cure for uh, opiate addiction and for everything. I mean, this is an enormously uh, profitable. Uh, enterprise. It, it is nowhere nearly as dangerous to adults as it is to kids. So I tell kids that once they have their own corporation, they can smoke all the marijuana they want. But the problem with kids is it 
kills ambition and you have a kid who is a good musician they stop playing music a kid who's an athlete they start they stop being an athlete um and so um, marijuana especially in large doses i think is a disaster um for children I have, I have, unfortunately, a patient who's going to be in prison another 20 years uh, because he gave up his uh, psychiatric medication because he found marijuana was much better. Somebody looked at his girlfriend funny. He had a kitchen knife and mm-hmm. he almost killed the guy. And, and so that's not marijuana's fault. But you also have... Uh, mothers who are losing their children to social services um, because they're just not taking care of their baby. And I had one patient, I had, you know, this heartbreaking, they're taking my baby. And and she said, marijuana is legal. And I said, so is Jack Daniels, but it doesn't make you a better mother. Uh, Nobody talks about giving kids alcohol, do they? Although I guess some kids get no, a little I, wine with I, a meal. I was talking about, was talking about the mothers <laughs> yeah. uh, who, who tell me that marijuana is, is legal. Uh, I, you know, I honestly, anything that stops uh, COVID is good, but we have had a lot of dangerous rumors out there. And I think that marijuana uh, prevents COVID is one of them. Um, I'd, I'd love to be wrong. You tell a number of stories about the children you've treated over the years, like the story of Frankie, (laughs) for example. And then there's also Anna Maria, Adeline, Marlo, Jamal, Malcolm. We can't get to all those stories, but they suggest the breadth of of problems children face. You want to talk about a few of them? Sure. Frankie's is really weird. (laughs) That's Frankie is a kid that if he went to urgent care or an emergency room, he would have been completely dismissed. Mother says he throws up twice a week. Uh, And you say, is there any fever? Is there any vomiting? Is there any diarrhea? Uh, Any pain? And Frankie will sit there and say no. And I, you know, a lot of what a pediatrician does is let, uh, the the child tell the story and i said what's up frankie he says it's every time she makes me eat eggplant it's <laughs> slimy and it makes me throw up and the mother says there's nobody's allergic to eggplant he's just making this up and i said that might be but let's run a scientific experiment and see if uh, Frankie minus eggplant for two weeks uh, gets rid of the vomiting, and it did. So, but w- how do I code that? You know, how do I? Uh, but but I. So I think in many many settings, um, you know, I, I can do that. I don't think urgent care center or emergency rooms can practice on that level. The, my other favorite Well, one, I just want to uh, interrupt yeah. and say that if an adult decides he or she doesn't like eggplant, nobody says anything about it. We all have certain foods that we right. prefer rather than others. Right. But with kids, we expect them to eat whatever we're eating. Right. <laughs> and um, th- yeah, and and th- we have a lot of unreasonable expectations of uh, of children, uh, sick and healthy, um, and so a lot of what I do is is try to make uh, expectations more reasonable. Well, how do you deal with the parents of an autistic child? Because those expectations are always going to be. Uh, 
for a difficult future. Yes, and I support them uh, any way I can. Uh, I encourage them uh, that these, there are now, um, the, the diagnostic criteria have changed. And so there are autistic kids uh, who are extremely shy and awkward, but they have some language. And those kids can do very well. Well, the, the uh, spectrum ranges from almost totally inarticulate to genius level, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely does. And, and the one thing uh, that ties them all together is that we call it all autism spectrum? Yeah, and we could be wrong. You're saying that in the future we may very well break this down into a number of different conditions? Absolutely. And we know that there are uh, autistic kids who are autistic because of a chromosomal uh, malfunction. Um, but we also know that most we don't find that uh, in, in most autistic kids. We have no idea um, what causes it. Um, well, some people argue that vaccines can be linked to autism. Right. And that was a very, very hurtful rumor, uh, which was put out there by a complete and utter quack who was uh, coincidentally uh, developing his own series of vaccines. You're talking about Wakefield? And, yes. And um, he was and, a British and, uh, yes. doctor, wasn't he? Right. Right. And. Um, and, and so that rumor was put out there for economic gain. Uh, it scared the hell out of people. Uh, the last thing a parent wants to think is that they might be hurting their child. And so that rumor made parents think that they were hurting their child by having them vaccinated. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Dr. Mark Vonnegut whose latest book is The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, published by Seven Stories Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and, stream, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I stopped you before you started telling some of the other stories about the, the children you, you've, you've uh, worked well, the joy with. Of being, it's the, the joy of being pediatrician is, you know, I said, I told one, one kid um, who might have had a urinary tract infection, I said, you have to pee in a cup. Mm -hmm. And he said, what's wrong with your bathroom? Um, I mean, you can't buy straight men like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and there were, yeah, I mean, you get constantly surprised by kids. And, and, um, and, and I think usually in, in, in a good way. Uh, you also, on the other end of it, um, I don't think there's anything more tragic than uh, losing a child to an opiate overdose. And that's another part of pediatrics that didn't used to be. Well, what about uh, knowing that a child has an untreatable illness uh, and is going to die in cancer, for example? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you deal with that? I cry. I mean, I, 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 I am. I am a big baby. And when I have a bit bad diagnosis or I lose a leukemic, by the way, just in cancer, I want to just sort of... Uh, say that we can now cure 85% of leukemia and other childhood cancers. Uh, but uh, I have lost patients. Um, 
and uh, and it's horrible. And and uh, I am, I do not have any emotional protection, and and I, I, I there was a patient who did very well, but I diagnosed uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. So what I thought he had, he did have it, and. Um, I was upset. I had taken care of him since he was a little baby, and he ended up comforting me. He said, <laughs> "He said it's all right, Doctor Vonnegut. You know, there's a there's an eighty percent cure rate, and I put a lot of sperm in the sperm bank. But anyway, he uh, he was comforting me. I I, I have you know I have become, uh, and and the the older I get, the more emotional I get about." Uh, uh, about, you know, kids doing well. You write, quote, the cure for burnout is letting doctors treat treatable diseases. <laughs> I, I, I believe it is because I think doctors were trained to be in charge and now they're, they're on an assembly line where they have to turn, they have to see six patients an hour and they have to do all the, the computer work, which is another two hours to their day. Um, and so they, you know, the expectation of being able to be of service, um, it just doesn't feel like you're of service when you're on an emer on a assembly line. I talk to uh, medical students about mental illness and other things, um, and. And at the end of my talk, there was a hand in the back of the auditorium. Um, and I said, yes. And she said, when do we get to help people? So that, it, you know, th there is, uh, when I went through medical school, I was trained to take care of people. That was the expectation. And uh, that expectation has now, uh, in many ways, been taken away from doctors. In spite of all the challenges in medicine, you say that your book is a love letter to your patients in your profession. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it truly, I have had you know, incredible choices. And uh, my patients have had incredible choices. And it's let me get away with some of the things I describe in the book, uh, like with Frankie, or some of the other patients, I get to practice the way I practice, I have prescribed puppies for depression. Um, but I am afraid that, uh, you know, patients now have to see people who are in their network um, and doctors have to code things in a way that they have just enough uh, two, three, one, threes as opposed to fours and fives. Um, so, I mean, this is this is what the work becomes rather than going into a room and saying, how can I help you and meaning it? Do you keep in touch with uh, many of your past patients? Yep, <laughs> they're, they're, and they're, and it's wonderful. I'm, you know. I'm, so they become adults, but you there you are a pediatrician yeah. still talking to them. What right. what role can a pediatrician play in the life of 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 an adult patient, a patient throughout the years? They're so proud of themselves. <laughs> I was at a stone quarry where this big 6'4", incredibly muscular kid uh, came up to me. And I looked up and he, and he said, 
Dr. Vonnegut, I got big. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, I, I guess you did, <laughs> you know. And so I, uh, you know, and I have uh, patients who come in with their patients, with their ba- with their kids, even if they're if I'm not their doctor or whatever, they they want to show off for me, and I want to I, w- I want to see how my patients have done, and again. If you're in an emergency room or a specialty where you see a child once or twice, you know, uh, you you don't get that. You don't have you don't have that kind of feedback. The social media are being blamed for a lot of uh, bad information being spread around. You have a, a chapter called "Social Media Isn't Social." Right, and friend is not a verb. <laughs> um, and, and and I do think. Um, it's scary how dependent adults and kids have become on these things. There was one um, father who was texting while driving and his, his kid said, Dad, you're not supposed to do that. That it's for business, as if that's an excuse. Um, and... Um, you know, a child will be wanting to tell his mother what happened at school or whatever, um, and the mother will be listening intently, and her her pocket will buzz, and she said, "Oh, just a minute," and and so she has to take a call rather than listen to her child. I think we have no idea what these devices are doing to us. Uh, I I I know it's not good. Well, what about the fact that some people are just not good parents? Uh, is that uh, you engage in a war with them at times? It's not a war. Um, I hope it's a form of education. Um, I have, you know, a huge part of my population, especially when I started, was Irish Catholic in in South Boston. Um, and they had aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, and they were still having 10 kid families and stuff. And so I think there was a lot of help for, um, you know, for parents with limitations. Um, and I think not everybody has that. And so I, a part of my job is telling people what's normal um, and to try to, uh, take some of the pressure off of parents and tell a mother that there's nothing they can do to make their child, you know, um, y- you know, a super student. And I tell fathers there's nothing they can do to make their ch- child a professional athlete. Um, so I'm not a, I'm not at war, but I do try to plant the seed. Well, we have uh, just that- a minute left and, uh, Boston Magazine has named you the, the number one pediatrician. What do you think makes the best doctors good? And uh, in turn, what does it mean to be a good patient? <laughs> you have a minute and a half to give me an answer. <laughs> a good doctor knows how to shut up and let the patient be the most important person uh-huh. in the room. Uh, and a good patient says thank you when you help them. Ah, it's I that simple. Say, yeah, I did it. I did it. <laughs> Well, gee, and I thought it was going to be a lot more complicated than that. Uh, but I do thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Mark Vonnegut um, has uh, written a number 
uh, books, uh, The Eden Express, a memoir dealing with his struggle with mental illness. Uh, and um, then uh, he, there was also Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness, Only More So. And now the book we've been discussing, The Heart of Caring, A Life in Pediatrics, published by Seven Stories Press. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, it's been a lot of fun for me. Thanks for, thank, <laughs> thanks for letting me be here. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. A special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archives at WBAI.org. And we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. In fact, I'm happy to announce that our podcast recently surpassed one million plays. Thanks to everyone who has listened. And you can also find all of our over 600 past shows at LetItLocateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take uh, just a few moments to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling... 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and to pay for basic things like the rent on our antenna. We are going through a rough time right now because as are all public radio stations because uh, money has become tight during this pandemic. But uh, if you value the kind of thing that we do here, which is uh, totally free from all the pressures, uh, corporate pressures, uh, I couldn't have done this conversation uh, without worrying about uh, what some of the pharmaceutical uh, advertisers might think if I were on another station. But here, I have total freedom to talk about whatever topic I think is important and uh, give my guests the opportunity to uh, to say what they, they want to say. And, and without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of London Lopate at large so we can keep bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else? Again, the number to call is 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Well, go online to give to WBAI.org. And our great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of London Lopate at large. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Thursday when home repair experts and regular contributors to the show, Alvin and Lawrence U. Bell, will answer your questions about the home repair projects you may be thinking about tackling this winter. We'll see you then. <laughs>